You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. The following podcast includes explicit language. Sorry, mom. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 31st, 2022. On this week's show, we'll assess the latest Kyrie Irving crisis as the Nets point guard endorsed an anti-Semitic documentary and then did not apologize for endorsing an anti-Semitic documentary. We'll also talk about the continued rise of Deion Sanders and Jackson State and what might be next for the coach and the school. And Claire Watkins of Just Women's Sports will be here to discuss the championship game of the National Women's Soccer League, won by the Portland Thorns and their young American superstar, Sophia Smith. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Check out our new season on 1942 with new episodes coming out every week. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Wild and Outside, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Uh, what do you got for us, Stefan? What do I got from which realm of, uh, of existence? So, Scrabble, shortstop. What, uh, yeah, what, what's, um, what's percolating see, the most? Lost in the, uh, in the four-team playoffs. Everyone makes the playoffs in our softball league. Alas, we lost in the, in the, uh, in the semifinals. Um, oh, so my and my run of incredible hitting came to came to an end. I'm afraid. You're like Aaron Judge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Yeah, clearly I'm a playoff joker. Um, Scrabble played in a tournament on Saturday. Went four and three. Yeah, not bad. Whatever. Mm-hmm. That's about five hundred. That's better than Jimbo Fisher. Uh, with that inspirational note, with us from California, it's the host of Slow Burn, season three and six, and still. Undisputed. I got out of here, man. <laughs> don't, don't do that. <laughs> Joel Anderson priming himself for the big uh, uh, battle in Austin in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Hi, Joel. Hey, man. I'm actually scared about Texas Tech. I think they could lose to Texas Tech. You think they could lose every week, though, Joel? Well, that's true. I'm pricing in that if they beat Texas, then you won't. You wouldn't retroactively care if they lost to Texas Tech. It, well, it would hurt. But yeah, beating Texas would, is always satisfying. You know, it it always saves a mediocre season. But if, if we if we pulled it off this year and lost to Tech, I still think I'd be a little bummed because I was like, well, we were really close. But the one thing I actually don't want is to. This is going to sound counterintuitive. <laughs> I don't want them to make the playoffs. I don't want them to play Georgia or Ohio State in the first round. You just don't want to have fun, Joel. That, that, Why that, can't you take inspiration from our friend Ben Mathis Lilly? Michigan fans were just glad to be there last year. That's pathetic of them. I forgot in my afterball last week that this was a, a realization I just came to that it's kind of a free roll against Texas actually because since you your primary mission is uh, trolling here or at least it's like one A and one B. If Texas beats TCU, then you can just <laughs> kind of talk about their three losses. 
And like, oh, like, great. You, you beat TCU. Like, congratulations on your uh, three-loss season. You're really back. Awesome. Amazing. Fair. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, this much is true. I mean, the thing with Texas is that even when they win, I get to win. It doesn't, you know, they get to line up and do the eyes of Texas in front of everybody and get to show how much of a winner's program they are. So, I'm surprised that Josh didn't mention, by the way, that Brown upset Penn on Saturday, ending Penn's undefeated season. We have we, yeah. Why have we not talked about these Ivy battles? Let's, what? Let's let's get on with the show. Okay. <laughs> um, in our in our Slate Plus segment this week, we are going to talk about the World Series and how there are no Black American players in said World Series, a perpetual issue and one that we will uh, dig into. You have to be a Slate Plus member to listen to that. And if uh, you are a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments, you get to support us, and you can join by going to slate.com slash hangupplus. In the post-game press conference following the Brooklyn Nets' fourth straight loss Saturday, ESPN reporter Nick Fidel confronted Kyrie Irving about his tweet Thursday that promoted the film Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America, which is filled with anti-Semitic disinformation. Here's a clip from their back and forth that night. And to follow up on the promotion of the movie and the book. Can you please stop calling it a promotion? What am I promoting? Put it out on your platform. But I'm promoting it? Do you see me doing, do you see By me in front of the, it out there, the people title? People are going to say that you are yeah, I put promoting. it out there just like you put things out there, right? Yeah, but I, okay. I, it's not You put stuff, things out there for a living, right? Right, but my great, stuff is great. not filled with anti Semitic stuff. Let's move on. Let's, move on. let's move on. Don't dehumanize me up here. I, I'm, not, I'm not doing I'm that. You're free to post I can what, post whatever I want. So say that what, and shut it down and move on to the next question. But Kyrie, you have to understand that by. I don't have post, to understand anything from you. But, but it's not me. Nothing. By it's no people that you're making you up, bro. Move on. But by posting move what on. you Next question. Anybody Do you guys have any more questions? And they're going to say, "You guys have any more questions?" Because this is going to be a clip. This is going to be a clip that he's going to marvel at. Is this any more questions? Uh, You all can't see the video of that, but Kyrie morphed into a literal sentient internet troll uh, in that moment. But look, Kyrie hasn't publicly backed down or apologized in the wake of the controversy, though he did apparently delete the tweet Sunday. Nonetheless, Irving's tweet drew condemnation from Nets owner Joe Tsai, and the NBA released a statement Saturday night that didn't directly address Irving's post, but decried hate speech. So, Josh, last week felt like a sort of inflection point for addressing anti-Semitism in sports. From Kyrie's comments to Kanye West's inflammatory remarks about Jewish people, which led to the closure of his prep school, Donda Academy, and Jalen Brown and Aaron Donald announcing they'd be leaving West. Donda Sports Agency. So what did you make of these stories? And what, if anything, do you think should be done about Kyrie? Yeah, you mentioned an inflection point about anti-Semitism in sports, which is definitely true. Um, But the thing that kind of overwhelmed me in thinking about this stuff and thinking about what to say is how similar it was to this conversation that we had a couple of years ago when Deshaun Jackson tweeted out this fake Hitler quote and Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post did a piece that kind of addresses the second half of your question, Joel, where he says time for Nets to show some backbone and move on from Kyrie Irving. But that piece also dug into what the content of this documentary was that Kyrie tweeted out. And it is the exact same stuff that Deshaun Jackson was tweeting, like, same exact fake Hitler quote, same exact fabricated 
quote um, from Herod, Harold Wallace Rosenthal that's been bouncing around for decades that's, you know, about lies about the Holocaust, Holocaust denialism, all of the same kind of anti-Semitic tropes. And the thing that um, kind of dawned on me is that Kyrie Irving, this guy who declares himself a free thinker, is incredibly unoriginal. It's kind of a joke to say somebody does his own research. Like we talk about that with, you know, Aaron Rodgers and vaccines or, or whatever. But go figure that all of these like free thinking people, all these people who do their own research, all these people who refuse to be cowed by the mainstream media, they'll do their own research and come up with the exact same shit that people have been coming up with about Jews for millennia. Um, and so I just don't understand. Uh, and yet I do understand Stefan, um, why this stuff keeps coming up and recirculating and why it's the exact same conversation every time Kyrie Irving at this point is predictable. He's boring. (laughs) He is not someone who is worth listening to on seemingly anything. Um, And that clip that um, Joel played in his intro, it's just exhausting. And the, the conclusion of the Deshaun Jackson thing was him seeming sincere or who, who the hell knows um, what's going on in his head and his heart, but doing a lot of the kinds of things you would do if you were sincere in terms of apologies that you would make, people that you talk to, people that you would listen to and, and seek out. And so it's hard. And I'll let you talk in a second, Stefan, because you don't want to excuse any of this kind of behavior, but the fact that it is so persistent, these kind of this slander, um, like I said, it's been going around for millennia. I can't necessarily fault someone for, again, like falling into the same trap or circulating the same lie that like millions of other people have circulated. And so if I was just being excessively generous, I would say, all right, you know, Kyrie, you're unoriginal. Like you um, are not actually somebody who has deep thoughts, even though you profess to, but like, okay, that's the same for, you know, a lot of us. The question is, what do you do when this is pointed out to you? And that's the big difference here is that, you know, Deshaun Jackson and a lot of other people have said, oh, I really fucked this up. Like, I understand now, or at least I uh, profess to understand. And Kyrie is like way past that place. And so I just feel like I'm kind of done with him or done having any expectations of him and who knows where, where the nets are, but that's where I am. Mike Vaccaro's suggestion was that it's just time to call bullshit on this guy, that it's just not worth it to have him around from a sports or human rights perspective. Um, Kyrie Irving is saying all of this in one of the most Jewish places on earth, literally. Brooklyn has about 600,000 Jewish people live in Brooklyn, according to a piece in Hadassah magazine from 2018, quotes the borough's official historian, Ron Schweiger, 
who says that there are more Jews right now in Brooklyn than anywhere else in the world, including the city of Tel Aviv. Kyrie Irving's a bullshitter. I mean, there's no substance to what he says. There is no, he's not intelligent. He is a smart person who thinks he is smart, um, who says things that he has read other places and does no actual research to determine if they are valid or not. Um, and it's difficult to argue with people like Kyrie Irving, right? I mean, that's why that clip that you played, Joel, is so infuriating to listen to. On Twitter, Zito Madu wrote, and I think he sort of summarized this extremely well, the impossible thing with people like Kyrie and all the other free thinkers, in quotes, is that any pushback to their nonsense, whether generally or from individuals, becomes evidence to them that they're right. They're just the entitled few who have discovered truths no one else has. So the question for the Nets is like, why are we putting up with this shit again? Like, why are we tolerating a guy who is a vaccine de denier and a COVID denier, who got a coach fired, who has been nothing but a headache when he's not scoring 35 points a game? It's in a very good team, apparently. They're one in five. Kevin Durant is frustrated already. What's the upside to keeping this guy around? Um, he has no right to be there. He has a right to say whatever he wants. He doesn't have a right to, to employment. Have you guys thought about what would happen if Kyrie Irving continues to play this season and he has a 40-point triple-double or hits a game-winning shot and the NBA's social media accounts have to say, Kyrie can't be serious, 40-point triple-dub tonight, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, can you envision a scenario in which Kyrie Irving can continue to be to just play basketball and the NBA pretend um, as if all is normal here, that, you know, we, we can just go back to it being all about basketball. Um, and, I, I, th yeah, there were multiple people yesterday that said that it looks like it's time for the Nets to blow it up. And at, and at first I was like, man, that seems really difficult. But actually, what are, as I thought about it, I was like, what are they keeping him for? Because they're not a good team. They're one in five right now. They have, and I found this out over the weekend, the lowest number of season ticket buyers in the league, the Brooklyn Nets. Um, so it's not like they're, they have this rabid fan base that is demanding the Kyrie and Kevin Durant show. Yeah. No, um, and, and apologies to whoever pointed this out on Twitter, but... If you're a fan of the Brooklyn Nets, you haven't been a fan of the Brooklyn Nets for very long because yeah. the Brooklyn Nets haven't been a team for very long. Um, pretty easy for someone to get excited about the Knicks and just yeah. take the subway to Madison Square Garden or to be a fan of any other team that you can watch every game of online. Absolutely. Like, there's no, there's, so the, the, the Nets have nothing to gain by keeping this guy on their team. And we actually do sort of have precedent here, although it's not nearly the same caliber of player. But does everybody remember Myers Leonard, um, who used an anti Semitic slur when he was playing with the, uh, the Miami Heat? He was using it while playing a video game live stream and people overheard him use an anti Semitic slur. The NBA suspended him for a week find him $50,000, and he was traded to the Oklahoma City Thunder. This is in, what, March 2021? He hasn't played in the NBA since. And 
you know, I mean, obviously Kyrie Irving is a much better player than Myers Leonard, but there is some sort of precedent for the NBA taking a stand here. And you just wonder, I mean, what what do you gain by holding on to Kyrie Irving at this point? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, I guess the argument would be <laughs> just from a purely basketball standpoint, there's more hope for the Nets than um, maybe for the Lakers. Like, they've got a lot of talent on that team still. They've got, uh, you know, Joe Harris and Seth Curry out with injuries. Um, yeah, they're one in five, but it's a long-ass season, and it's hard. Ben Simmons is getting nothing but better. Every, everything we've ever thought about the Nets is always theoretical. Like, they're always supposed to be better than they are, and they never are. And I feel like we're doing the same thing right now. Well, I mean, they're one in five. They're horrible. They have a, a terrible defense, the same terrible defense they've had for the last three years. But there's still a chance. And I just, any, any optimism I'm just saying, you have like, for them. They're, yeah. the, like, if you have him on your roster and you have Kevin Durant on your roster, you're like, these guys have won, uh, right. you know several of you know three of the last x number of nba championships i mean it's not necessarily magical uh thinking i've never watched this show the wire but like the uh the, there's a line from i've never it. seen the, the wire never watched the yes. wire yes. i've never watched the wire yeah i never thank watched you wire. yeah right sorry no no, sorry. no particular pa- pa- apologies yeah but i have seen this clip the thing about the past josh is that it's the past Okay, which I, which I, I mean, this is in 2018. That would have been a great thing to have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. This is 2022, going into 2023. But go ahead. I, I the thing is that nobody. The thing is that nobody in or around the Nets is having fun or has been having fun for years now, and that is maybe 84 percent due to Kyrie Irving. I mean, he, you know, the reason that the Nets were theoretical last year is that Kyrie tanked their season. Um, and so he's, he's not a guy that, uh, I would necessarily extend, uh, a lot of grace to for, for that reason. But, you know, the Nets kind of screwed up by claiming with the vaccine stuff that they were taking some sort of moral high ground and he wasn't going to play. And then when they started to play poorly, they're like, oh, actually we changed our mind and we're now in the moral middle ground. I guess now they're in the... <laughs> the moral like trench. I, I don't know if there's a, a, such a term exists, but again, when I was going through my like journey of whatever the links we posted the last time we talked about this a couple of years ago, I reread this really great Adam Serwer piece in the Atlantic. He's black and Jewish and he kind of tried to answer the question of why do a lot of people or some people refuse to break from Louis Farrakhan, who said the most incredibly vile stuff about Jewish people, like for his, you know, for for decades. And is I was actually thinking about this. Is he more influential than Kyrie Irving? Probably, but he probably has fewer like people that listen to uh I mean, over the like wow. life of his career That's... and professional life, he's probably influenced more people than Kyrie, but Kyrie has a much bigger platform now than Louis Farrakhan does. That's shock. I mean, I I never even thought of that comparison about who's more influential. But that is that's shock. Like, it just you kind of blew my mind even <laughs> bringing that up. I gotta I gotta sit down and think about it, Josh. But yes, but yeah. So it was a really interesting piece, and it was around um, someone who was one of the leaders for the Women's March refusing to denounce Farrakhan. And Adam Serwer talked to her, and they had an actually like good and interesting conversation. And like. The world is a complicated place and people are complicated and the nation of Islam has done a lot of good things and a lot of terrible things. And so the thing 
that makes the Kyrie situation is impossible is that you can't have a conversation with him or you don't, why would you want to have a conversation with him? Is He's not somebody who's interested in listening or hearing what anyone has to say. And yeah, you said he doesn't really do his own research. Well, look, we don't, most of us don't do our own research. We defer to people that know like, right. I, I don't, I'm not like a geophysicist. I'm not a, a virologist. I don't, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know personally. And so we have to make a decision about who we trust, who we listen to. Do we get our news from YouTube? Do we get it from, you know, wherever? Um, and he is somebody who has made a lot of bad decisions in that regard, has fallen into a lot of the deep rabbit holes sinkholes um, that a lot of other people before him have fallen into. And there's nothing special about those patterns of thought. And there are people who, so many people who've been able to kind of extricate themselves from those patterns of thought. And maybe he will at some point, but he just seems so far gone that again, I just don't know what you do with what you do with him, or why you you would even have any interest in uh, in, in engaging at all. Well, the Nets have choices, right? I mean, one of them is whether to keep him or not. Another is whether to let him sit in front of a microphone after a game. Don't have to. He doesn't have to. The team doesn't have to allow him to do that. Um, he's sitting at a podium with the Nets logo behind him. Um, if the team is sick of that they could shut that down. I mean, the problem with Kyrie Irving... But aren't there NBA rules around how you have to be available to the media? Um, maybe there are. Maybe there aren't. You don't think, like, the $10,000 fine is something that the Nets would be willing to pay to keep his, you know, to get him from, the, to stop him from spouting off about this shit? I mean, sure, he can still do all that. He's got gigantic platforms. He's got 17 million followers on Instagram and 5 million followers on Twitter or whatever. Um he can say whatever he wants whenever he wants to say it. But at this point, you know, this is, a, this is an act. He has made himself into some sort of, he wants to make himself into the victim. Um, he even said over the weekend that, you know, when it came to his vaccination, that I had to deal with that real-life circumstance of losing my job for this decision. Well, it sounds like he lucked out that time. Maybe he doesn't get to luck out again. Right. And Stephanie, you, you mentioned uh, earlier, you said something about, you know, is that maybe Kyrie was a smart person. And I, I would ask, actually, is he a smart person? Or does he talk like a smart person who spent a couple of months at Duke? Um, and I remember, you know, I, I just, I don't know if somebody said this on Twitter or, or who I was, maybe I was having a conversation with somebody, but we were, t we were talking about the fact that Kyrie represents, and I don't know if it's a generational thing, I don't know if it's just, you know, these people have always been among us, but the people who believe that contrarianism equals intellectualism. Correct. And who are so deep in their bullshit that they cannot tell the difference between the two. And if we remember, this started with Kyrie when everybody was like, what's up with that dude? When he started passing along the idea that the earth was flat and later it morphed into JFK was assassinated because he wanted to end the bank cartel in the world, which is, you know, also sort of an, another one of those anti-Semitic tropes, right? And We haven't mentioned the Alex Jones thing that he shared either. Right. The Alex Jones thing, man. Um, he, You know, so <laughs> it's he has been doing this for a long time and 
he, as you mentioned, he's very influential. And I think he found out it was a way to appear smart to a group of people who will also idolize him. Um, and there are a lot of people, and we've even, you know, we've talked to people who've come on here and defended Kyrie and everything else. And I just, you know, over the years, you know, he had entered a particular stratosphere, especially when he joined the Nets. I just didn't want to hear anything from him. And I only wanted to allow myself to appreciate him as a basketball player. But even now, I think we're beyond that. And I mean, for a guy who thinks you're so smart, how did you end up in the same place as Kanye West, who himself says he's never read any books, right? If you're that smart, like, how are you passing along and indulging in the same bullshit? Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe now we can, you know, maybe now we can see the difference here that like Kyrie is not a smart person. In fact, that he's a person who is like Josh said, he's dabbling in some of the oldest, stupidest, most toxic bullshit that has been around as long as humans have existed. And he's trying to pass it off as like academia. He's a gifted person. Um, but I, I think we have come a long way, I think, in appreciating how brilliant and intelligent the vast majority of athletes are. And so there's a risk, I think, in saying that someone who is clearly so gifted and so brilliant in certain ways is an idiot and stupid or whatever, you know, pejorative terms you want to do. But I, I think <laughs> you have to, you have to earn those, uh, those labels, those classifications, and he has uh, done the work to earn, I, I think, whatever negative thing you would want to say about him. And the the Kanye, you know, thing of like sharing a photo of Kyrie saying there's still some some real ones left. Uh, I mean, those guys can uh, those guys can have each other. Have fun. Have fun at your uh, your club meeting. In a better world, Kanye would have been would have disappeared a decade ago um, when he started first indulging in this sort of toxic bullshit, and maybe we would have done the same thing. Like I said, in a better world, Kyrie's vaccine stance would have been seen as so irresponsible, so ridiculous, so dangerous that we no longer had to hear about him or talk about him. And like maybe we finally reached that point. I hope we have. In the next segment, we're going to talk about prime time. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
This past weekend, ESPN's College Game Day passed on the Ann Arbors and Happy Valleys and even the Knoxvilles of the world and made its first ever visit to Jackson, Mississippi, home of the Jackson State football team and, most importantly for ESPN's purposes, home of Jackson State's head coach, Deion Sanders. This year, in his third season at the historically Black College, Coach Prime has the Tigers undefeated, including a 35 to nothing win over Southern on Saturday. Here's a little bit of what Dion said on the college game day set. Desmond, I had a mother who worked her butt off so ends would meet, and I was only embarrassed at her once in my life. I lied and told some of my homies that I played with that she was a nurse, mm-hmm. and they called her cleaning the hospital as a custodian. I made up my mind from then on that I would never lie, especially about my mother, yeah. but I had to believe. Right. The reason I lied because there was a lack of belief in me that I could rescue her one day when she would never have to work another day of her life. Gotcha. So when I say I believe, it's not just about football. Mm-hmm. It's about the single mothers out there. When I say I believe, it's not just about the single mothers. It's the fathers that's in the hospital on dialysis. When I say I believe, yes, I'm talking about everybody who has the audacity to believe when they're facing adversity. Hell yeah. <laughs> Joel, we've talked about Dion a couple of times before on the show. You did a really good afterball a couple of years ago about why you didn't think Jackson State should have hired him for reasons we'll get into. Um, but what did you think of this weekend's spectacle and what do you make of what he's accomplished? Yeah, so like a lot of the Dion experience, I thought it was a fantastic opportunity and incredible exposure for Jackson State and one that I wish everyone else uh, that is at or cares about HBCUs had the benefit of. Um, you know, college game day is great for that. And it probably gave people a window into HBCUs. Cause I, I mean, I can't imagine that there are a lot of people who aren't black who follow HBCU sports. And even then it's like mostly Southern black people that, that know about the pageantry, the spectacle, the halftime bands, um, you know, the, the culture of HBCU football. Like that's great that those school, you know, Southern and Jackson State got that sort of a platform. Um, for everybody else. Um, but in terms of what he's accomplished, that too is great. Like I can't, you cannot quibble with what Dion has been able to do at Jackson State, certainly on the field and in generating interest off the field. Uh, but all the same concerns that I ever had about him in the first place are always there, which is that he's not in it because he cares for HBCUs. He's in it for himself, which is, you know, if he was at an FBS school, Anywhere else, I probably wouldn't care too much about him because I think fundamentally a lot of those coaches are much the same. But HBCUs have a different mission. Um, it doesn't really matter if they're good at football, and it shouldn't really matter. Um, those schools serve a different purpose, and they serve a different student base. And when Dion is gone to Georgia Tech, Arizona State, wherever, like those schools are still going to be there and that same mission is going to be there. And so the, the, the real testament to what Dion has done at Jackson State is will it last, will it outlast him in HBCUs? And he's really good. He gives a good sermon, but will he be back? You know, when Jackson, Mississippi is going through, you know, the same water problems, when Jackson State players need more equipment in 2026, will he be there? I mean, that's sort of the, the, the question for me. I don't know. Is that a fair criticism of Dion personally, though? I mean, he's bringing his brand, which is what he is, to this place that was starved for money, starved for attention, starved for a p- bigger piece of the college sports pie. 
He got Walmart to build them a practice field. He got sponsors for the conference. Um, he's gotten, he got attention to be paid to the water crisis in Jackson. I mean, there's a lot you can criticize Deion Sanders for, and we're going to, um, but it feels like, you know, watching the college game day and watching John Wertheim's 60 Minutes story about him over the weekend, that there is a good person in there that cares about the place that he is devoting his current attentions to. And his attentions are going to change. But for now, it's kind of cool that he's out recruiting Power 5 schools for some players and that he has managed to raise the the physical plant and attention for uh, a, a historically black college um, that will benefit from the Dion effect, probably. I mean, I don't know if it's like Flutie effect, but there's certainly more black athletes that will look at Jackson State and other HBCUs and say, yeah, maybe I should go do that too. That's one of the things he's taking credit for, right, Josh? It was interesting, or it has been interesting to see the response to him from within the conference and from within the schools that are their peer institutions. And Wertheim's piece on 60 Minutes, it was uniformly positive from the kind of higher-ups at Jackson State, from the commissioner, the SWAC, talking about how he'd never been around a superstar before. There's a little bit of kind of obsequiousness to it, but um, I, I think everybody that was quoted in that piece seemed to think his heart was in the right place and that he was overall good for the institution and the institutions. But then there was this dispute with the Alabama state coach, Eddie Robinson Jr. Maybe the most amazing fact about uh, anyone is that he is a swag football coach named Eddie Robinson Jr. who apparently has no connection to Eddie Robinson, the Grambling Form, coach. For, former Houston Orla linebacker. So. Um, there you go, Eddie Robinson Jr. Um, Stefan, what is your Eddie Robinson Jr.? No, um, <laughs> so... They got into this dispute where Eddie Robinson Jr. was like essentially accusing Dion of being fake, being in it for himself. Like they got into this like kind of tiff after um, uh, after the game about handshakes and everything. And Eddie Robinson Jr. says, I'm living on the shoulders of the swack. He ain't swack. I'm swack. Um, that he's this outsider who's come in and he's acting like he owns the place when other people have been building up these schools and fighting this fight with no attention for decade upon decade. And Dion, Joel, as he uh, is kind of uniquely able to do, turns who's swack, he ain't swack, into this like rallying cry. There are people chanting it on the game day set. There are people chanting it on, uh, you know, in the stadium during the games. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's funny. Um, it's there's something kind of powerful, I guess, in seeing people or hearing people chant. There is the kind of like um, revivalist sort of uh, quality to this whole thing with um, the fans and both in the stadium and outside. But also, he does just have this way of making everything about him. And there mm -hmm. is, in any realm of life and human experience, investing all of your hope. And that's what this conference seems to have done. Investing all of your hope into one flawed human being is not, 
I don't know if that's ever worked out in life. In, in well, life. Joel, Joel, isn't the question like, what's the conversation going to be in a year or two or three after Dion leaves? There's always the risk that Dion's going to leave something behind that we will discover later, that will be discovered later, and that will soil this era of good feelings. Well, right. Well, that's kind of why I just, I, I, I sort of, take exception to the idea that because Dion has been able to get a lot of attention to himself, that there wasn't a lot of support for HBCUs already. Do you know which school led the FCS in attendance uh, every year before Dion Sanders got there? It was Jackson State. Like Jackson State has always had a great fan base. Do you know that Jackson State has more NFL Hall of Famers than all of the schools in Mississippi combined. I'm talking about Ole Walter Miss, Payton. Mississippi State, Southern Miss, and like most of the SEC schools. You know what I mean? Like Dion is, I mean, like let's not, but he's, he, I mean, I think he, there's a danger of treating him like Christopher Columbus here. Like that he, de- he discovered something that was already there, but was able to generate enough heat and enough attention to himself, which is fine. Like, I think it is benefiting the players that are within that locker room right now, which is fine. But that's not, that's not what he's claiming that he's doing. Like, he's not just saying, Hey, I'm a really good football coach and people are hating on me because I'm good at football. No, what he's saying is that he's doing mission work. And actually, Kevin, can you play? This clip from the 60 Minutes interview, please. Sanders took the job at Jackson State three months after George Floyd's murder. Timing, he says, that was no coincidence. It was relevant because a lot of folks sit back on the Twitter fingers and talk about what they're going to do. And and I wanted to go do it. Do what? Change lives. Change the perspective of, of HBCU football. Make everyone step up to the plate and do what's right by these kids. Respectfully, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, what, I mean, how is being good at football at Jackson State, what in the hell does that have to do with George Floyd or changing people's lives? You know what I mean? Like, again, I don't want to, I mean, because Deion Sanders, for the job he was hired to do, he's done it. He's a very good football coach. Jackson State has played above itself and gotten attention, you know, in the modern era that it has not had in many, many years. But, like, what he's saying is that he's doing something different, that he is essentially, like, doing mission work. And, I mean, is it really mission work if it all goes away once you leave? You know, he's openly talking about, hey, I, you know, I might, be, I might go. I mean, I'd be crazy not to. Well, I mean, like, the people that are invested in care in HBCUs, they're there because it's about more than themselves and more about what the next opportunity is. And I think that's when, when you, when you notice a difference in the reaction to Dion from people within the SWAC and HBCU community and people outside, I think that is what the problem is, is that Dion is pretending as if he's doing something that they're not. But the issue is that he's Deion Sanders. Of course he's going to get attention. Of course he's going to be able to get money and tap into people that other people are not. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, just because you're a good football coach doesn't mean that you've done something great. I found it kind of admirably honest that in all these interviews he's admitted that he'll listen to any offers that come his way. And I think it would, we all know that that's true. And so I think there's a sort of nakedness about who he is and and what he's doing that I think it would be worse if he came in and said, I was, I'm never going to leave. And this is where I'm going to be forever. And then just kind of pulled the rug out 
from everyone. But I think the counter argument to everything you said, Joel, is that he is who he is. He admits to who he is. We've known who he is. And he is leveraging his himness to do what exactly what he's done. And it's gone way better than I thought it was going to go. Like, I thought that there was going to be some kind of scandal around, like, what happened with Prime Prep, his school mm-hmm. in Texas, which was just an unmitigated disaster from beginning to end, which he said, you know, he should have... He's essentially blamed it, and I don't know enough to to know who to trust here on the person, the other person who ran the school. But, like, there are allegations that, he ch- that Dion choked people. There were athletes there who felt like they'd been sold a bill of goods and didn't get out what that school, what they'd been promised. And, you know, he didn't stick around there and say, you know, I I made promises to these kids and I want to make sure that everyone at this school got, you know, what they, what they felt they'd been promised or what they deserved. That's not a thing that happened. And so I was concerned. And I think you were concerned, Joel, that the same thing was going to happen at Jackson state, that the whole thing was going to be a house of cards, which there there is, I think, a level of sincerity here and accomplishment on the terms of like being a football coach mm-hmm. at this school that exceeded my expectations. And so um, I do want to acknowledge that. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. What do you think, Stefan? Well, I, I don't know how to evaluate his ability as a football coach. We can evaluate his ability as a salesman and as a recruiter at a time where it is easier than ever for college football coaches to get talent to come their way because of the transfer portal. And it's not, by the way, as you pointed out earlier, Joel, it's not like HBCUs haven't been in the news in the last few years for recruiting athletes who chose not to go to Power five schools, that was a thing. We talked about this in basketball. We talked about this. We had the athletic director at an HBCU on the show um, during the pandemic. Um, it's not like Deion Sanders has has revived or re-imaged what an HBCU is. He has leveraged his celebrity for mm-hmm. one school and, you know, tangentially the conference that most HBCUs play in to generate some media attention, revenue, improve facilities, and get some better athletes. Those are honest accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Who they serve ultimately and whether they serve Dion more than the school, only time is going to really tell, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, and I don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to come off too hard here on Dion because, look, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, maybe he'll stay. Um, maybe when he leaves, the improvements he's made will um continue to help that that Jackson State program continue to thrive. Um, and I have to be honest, I mean, people that follow me know that I wanted him to be the head coach at TCU over Sonny Dykes. But, but, but see, the thing is, is that I fundamentally believe the mission of people that play FBS football in those schools is much different than that of the HBCUs. Like, that's, that's so, to the extent that anybody might think of that some inconsistency, I think of FBS football as business I think of HBCU athletics as something else together entirely. And I, I guess, you know, stepping back for a second and, you know, thinking about like college game day and everybody sort of paying attention to HBCUs now, um, I, I would actually sort of ask media 
and people that think that, you know, um, you know, Dion has discovered a new world. Like, what do you think it is? Like, why do you think HBCU sports hasn't gotten the attention of the resources that it's gotten before? Like, do you think black people are bad with money? Like, do you think that um, HBCUs uh, have worse coaches and they just don't know the game? Um, you know, I, I, and I'll, I always noted, I always wanted to write about this guy or, or, or do something on him. Um, so the last... HBCU coach to move from HBCU to FBS was a guy named Willie Jeffries. He went from Southern California, South Carolina State to Wichita State back in 1979. Uh, Wichita State eventually discontinued his football program and Willie Jeffries went back to Howard. But that's, that was 1979. They're the only head coach from an HBCU to get hired by an FBS school since that's we're talking, you know, 40 plus years was Jay Hobson at Alcorn State and he was white. He went to he went to Southern Miss, right? And so, I, so, so people can look at HBCU football. I don't know which sort of the, the cognitive dissonance is here that like black people don't know football, therefore they can't use HBCU football to do something greater or go to that platform. But for people that think that Dion has like done something unique here, in which he has, but like, why do you think that like HBCU football hasn't gotten this sort of attention before? Like, do you think it's the fault of those people at those schools, or do you think that there's something else working here? And that's and that's also kind of what I would like Dion to say, or to be more explicit about that. Like, I'm able to do this because I'm me, but like, don't think that Eddie Robinson Jr. isn't doing something special here too. That all, you know, Rod Broadway when he was at Grambling in North Carolina A&T, that they weren't doing something special too. Um, and I think that's that's why you've seen a lot of this pushback from people that care about HBCUs because Dion is pretending in much the same way as everybody else, that we, they didn't know how to do it until Dion showed up. Up next, Claire Watkins of Just Women Sports on the National Women's Soccer League championship game. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. On Saturday night, the Portland Thorns beat the Kansas City Current 2-0 to end a tumultuous season in the National Women's Soccer League. The championship final reflected much of the progress that the league has made. More than 17,000 fans filled soccer-specific Audi Field here in Washington, and the game was shown in prime time on CBS. A first. League-wide attendance, thanks to strong new franchises in L.A. and San Diego, increased 70% this year over last, topping 1 million fans for the first time. But the finale also was a reminder of what the league has been through. The Portland team owner, Merritt Paulson, didn't attend the game, let alone the trophy presentation, because he and other team executives were central figures in the Yates report documenting repeated sexual and emotional abuse by male coaches in the NWS. Claire Watkins is a staff writer at the media startup Just Women's Sports. She was at the championship match and is with us now. Welcome to the show, Claire. 
Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's start with the game. The run-up was dominated by the Yates report and the Thorns' central role in it. You wrote after the final that, quote, the players were put under a level of pressure that could have warranted a full collapse. Instead, they played for each other and for the supporters that have been with them every step of the way. The game seemed almost like a catharsis for them. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion in the past weeks for the Thorns players specifically about kind of finding the joy in their work. And for them, that has always centered about being out on the field. And so I do believe when you have kickoff, you know, kickoff to final whistle for them, that is the best part of their day. It's the best part of their job and it allows them to step away from the other off field distractions. And I do believe on the ground, the coaching staff, training staff, they have a good support system around them and they looked incredibly well prepared for this game. And like they were in a good mental space to, to execute as well as they did. Uh, Clayton, so you were, obviously you were at the game. Can you talk a little bit about what the atmosphere was like there? Um, I mean, 17,000 fans, it's on CBS. Uh, it seems like it was a pretty live scene. Yeah, it was great. It was about the biggest and best we've seen so far. The NWSL, interestingly, is it's a neutral site final, which sometimes has to do with just bandwidth to be able to pull off a big event. So they like to have a, a large run into to championship weekend, though sometimes coincidentally, it ends up being in the home market of one of the teams playing. Obviously, Washington, D.C. is the home market of the Washington Spirit, who were not in the playoffs this year. So true neutral final. But it felt like not only did um, Kansas City and Portland fans travel quite well, had a lot of just women's soccer fans come out from, from the area or from a couple different cities, maybe different NWSL markets to be part of the festivities. And it was a very good mix of, of league activation and, and fan led events. And yeah, it was really, really exciting. It was by my standards, I think the best true neutral site event the NWSL has ever had in that neither of the teams playing was a local team. And yet it was a huge, huge event for the league. Kind of nice to talk about the NWSL and talk about a soccer game. Um, go figure. And the star of this game was the star of the season, the MVP, Sophia Smith, who's um, a young U.S. women's national team star as well. And she even had uh, the, the kindness to provide us with a memeable moment of the shrug after her goal. Um, tell us a little bit more about... Sophia Smith's, um, maybe her goal that, um, the, the shrug and kind of what it says about who she is for this league and in the, you know, world of women's soccer. Yeah. The, the celebration was kind of surprising. She's not really a huge goal celebrator in that she doesn't always have things planned. Um, which was part of why it was actually kind of incredible to see. Uh, yeah, Sophia Smith, um, she's 22 years old. You have to remember that she left college early, which is not the norm for many soccer players in the United States. So had she gone through her full four years at Stanford, she would be a rookie this year. So she is at the level or the age of the other NWSL rookies that we saw this season. Um, and yes, yeah, she, you know, she got second in the Golden Boot race. She wins MVP. There, you know, the other major player who was in the running for that was Alex Morgan, who also had an excellent season. And I think Smith kind of took to heart maybe this idea that people thought that she was given the award a little bit too soon, um, just sort of chatter that you have when people are really passionate about certain players. And the shrug was 
really fantastic because Smith is just a very humble player. She, um, she always diverts attention over to her teammates. She's incredibly good with media, but then when the moment came, she had something that she wanted to say and she wanted it to be very clear. And so, yeah, we thought maybe it was a Michael Jordan kind of a shrug at the very beginning, but she said, no, it was more of a, well, that's that MVP doing MVP like things in the biggest game of the year. I like the fact that the Twitter feed Art But Sports side-by-sided her shrug with some 1616 painting. Um, It was just perfect. Um, But she, as a talent, is really promising. I mean, not promising. She's there now. I mean, she has talked about wanting to be the best player in the world. Coaches from the national team coach, Vlado Andonofsky, to her coach in in Portland, um, Ryan Wilkinson, have all basically said she has the ability. She's fast. She finds space. She can shoot. She creates. She's the real deal. Absolutely. Um, Portland is a team of stars. They have Becky Sauerbrunn. They have Christine Sinclair. They have Crystal Dunn. Sophia Smith was the best player on that pitch on Saturday night. And it's not, and there are very specific things that she does where she is possibly already one of the best in the world. When you see her dribble with the ball, when she enters the penalty area with the ball at her feet, she's untouchable. There's now this expectation that she can draw in three defenders and she's still going to find a way to get a shot off. Um, I think that also what we've seen for her this year is again, She's younger. She's moving up in that U.S. Women's National Team system, which, as we know, can be very entrenched. Veteran leadership is a big role there. She's becoming more confident. And I think that that actually it's that element, that mental element of, yes, I'm going to drag three defenders and I'm going to get this shot off is now starting to match her physical gifts. And that is why we're able to see her pull this off in a game of this magnitude. Right. You know, before the playoffs began, uh, Sophia, you know, was asking Thorns fans to support the players. And it seems like, you know, throughout that uh, the Thorns fans have been, you know, really rabid, stuck with the team through like what was a really difficult time. So if you could talk a little bit about what it means that for the league, that one of its most troubled franchises, you know, the one that was at the center of the scandal won the championship. It seems like it could be an indication of how resilient the, the franchise and the league might be. Yeah, and it's becoming something of a trend. If you remember last year, Washington Spirit, they won the championship last year as well in the middle of an ownership battle. Um, Sometimes it feels like women's uh, sports teams get very, very good at compartmentalizing or even perhaps in a weird way, it becomes a galvanizing experience, right? Where you think there's a lot going against us right now, so we're going to key in with one another and execute on the field. But yeah, that has actually been the story since the Yates report. And I think that we heard from Commissioner Berman this weekend as well that the NWSL does want to get this right. This The NWSL really does want to fix the culture that has been so broken in recent, or pretty much since its inception. And so transparency is actually welcomed as difficult as it is. And I think the NWSL is going to push for further transparency. And so in a very weird way with more information coming out and the truth being unveiled, that's liberating for players. They don't have to carry that burden anymore once it goes out into the public. Um, And then we also saw sponsors stick by the league. Sponsors have been really fantastic in this whole thing because one of the issues with cultures of, of toxicity and abuse is people play on your fears that if you speak up, the infrastructure around you will collapse. And that's been an issue in women's sports for a very long time. So the the renewed support by fans, by sponsors, by the league itself in trying to pursue the truth has been really powerful. And I think that is the true hope for the future going forward. And the conversation about women's sports and women's sports leagues, um, you know, we've heard it around 
the WNBA and various iterations of basketball and soccer leagues in this country, it's like, should it be supported because you need to support women's sports? It's a social cause. Is it? No, it needs to be a business that stands on its own. No, it's like entertainment. And that's why the WSL, I think, found itself in such a tricky spot. If you're arguing that it's important to support this entity because we need a, a league like this in the country, well, we don't necessarily need this particular league with this particular people. We need these players. We need a platform for them. And so um, it actually is kind of amazing that we're talking about, you know, a, an expansion team with there's going to be a fee over $20 million and potentially a, a bidding war. You have these new teams in San Diego and L.A. with Angel City FC that have all these attendance records. And so given that kind of how tenuous this, you know, women, professional women's soccer has been in this country, how kind of massively foundationally messed up this league has been in its infancy, that it actually seems to be on such solid footing, um, is a kind of remarkable story. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think it does come down to when a lot of this was revealed. And I want to be kind of clear about this as well. It's not just the NVUSL. It's not just women's soccer. Um, you look, you know, US, U.S. soccer ran the NWSL for years when much of this was happening. Um, they are an entity that is under the Olympic system. They're a national federation. Look at some of the things that happened in USA Gymnastics. There are other stories out there that I, I want to be always clear that one of the, the actually, again, hopeful things is that the NWSL is committed to transparency. And so acting like the NWSL is unique in this is actually probably doing a disservice to some of the other stories that haven't probably been told. Um, but to your point, when all of this came out, and even when the investigation started, and there are two, right? There was the U.S. soccer investigation with Sally Yates, and now there is going to be a further one, I think a little bit wider in scope by the NWSL itself and the NWSL Players Association. The players immediately, the current players of the NWSL said, this league can't go anywhere. We do not want that. That messaging was incredibly clear from the first moment that all of these things started to come up. And that has, I think, been a central grounding force for everybody else in what they've decided to do with the league. Um, so when the players came together, the union is very strong. They negotiated their first collective bargaining agreement earlier this year. They said, we're going to fix it from the inside and you have to trust that we're going to be able to do that. And that's kind of been the, the direction that everyone has been pulling ever since. And Stefan, maybe a positive is that it's new enough that structures and even individual people aren't entrenched enough that they can't be replaced and things can't be reconfigured. Right. I think that's exactly right. And Claire, I'm going to quote something you wrote in Defector last year after the Athletics report about the former Thorns coach, Paul Riley, you said that the NWSL has been exposed for operating at an intersection of ineptitude and malice that has left players stuck in between needing the league to survive and needing everything holding it up to collapse. And what we have seen in the year that's transpired since then is that the players and the players alone and their advocates, like the union, are the ones that made sure in the face of this horrific reporting and investigations about abuse at the highest levels of women's soccer in this country, the players are the ones that 
have ensured that this survived. And the players are the ones that are effectively responsible for a $20 million you know, expansion fee valuation and a $35 million valuation or a $35 million sale for the Washington Spirit earlier this year and tens of millions of dollars in funding being raised by other teams in this league. Um, so when we talk about like, oh, they've come through this crisis, well, they've come through this crisis because they decided to take charge of the operation and get rid of the people that were destroying it. Yeah, exactly. And I think also just further action is, needs to be taken. This is now a space to watch. As you said, Merritt Paulson was named in, in the Yates report and other executives at the Thorns were let go in the wake of that. He is still the owner of the team. He has not been asked to sell. Nobody knows if that's the next step or not waiting for that PA investigation to close first. There are other owners involved, right? Arnim Whistler and the Chicago Red Stars. We still also just don't know if there's a wider scope in what happened in Louisville other teams that might also be implicated in this new investigation. And when the Yates report came out, they basically said, we're going to leave it to the league to decide actionable steps. And what Commissioner Berman said this weekend is that they are still sort of in that, that stage of finding the facts, and then they're going to give recommendations. So there's still a lot of work to be done. But like you said, no one is irreplaceable. And I think that is has been the message, a, a positive message, actually, in the last, I would say, actually year since since we got this first reporting in The Athletic about Paul Riley. Claire Watkins is a staff writer at the new website, Just Women's Sports. You should check it out at justwomensports.com and sign up for Claire's three times a week newsletter about women's soccer and other women's sports. Claire, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. And it is now the time in the show when we adjudicate who is or is not swack. And our <laughs> uh, contestant today is Eddie Robinson Jr. Uh, he is from New Orleans, Joel. Went to Brother Martin. I was going to say, did he go to St. Augustine? But I- He didn't go to St. Augustine. He went to Brother Martin. He was a walk-on at Alabama State. Um, and I was just chuckling, looking at his uh, Wikipedia page. He um, did play for the Houston Oilers from 92 to 95, and then went on to play for Jacksonville, Tennessee, went to Jacksonville, Tennessee, and Buffalo. And on his Wikipedia, it says, he was the ultimate professional and obtained the nickname K-N-I-C-K, space N-A-M-E, Steady Eddie for his methodical preparation and on-field knowledge of the game. Nickname. <laughs> okay, well, you know, hey, that's... <laughs> uh, his nickname was uh, Osman Sisa, uh, Frederick Weiss. 
Steady Eddie. He needs a better nickname, whether it's a K-N-I-C-K or an N-I-C-K. That's a good name, man. I can't imagine you walking into a barbershop and somebody be like, Miss Steady Eddie. You know, you want to be called Steady Eddie. Not the most original Eddie nickname, though. Sometimes the classics work, you know. So you're telling me that Steady Eddie is, in fact, swack. Oh, very much so. That guy's Southern died in the wool, man. Hard to be more swack than having the name Eddie Robinson Jr. and being a swack defensive player of the year and now be a, a swack coach than that. Than and Eddie playing Robinson in the NFL. Jr. And playing in the NFL. The gavel has been clanked. Stefan, what is your Eddie Robinson Jr.? Big game in Division Three men's soccer last Friday at Gaelic Park in the Bronx. New York University held the unbeaten, untied, and number one ranked University of Chicago to a nil-nil draw. But the result wasn't why the game was news. It was news because both teams were coached by women, Kim Wyant for NYU and Julianne Sitch for Chicago. It was apparently the first time that two women have coached against each other in an NCAA men's soccer game. David Waldstein of the New York Times wrote a good story about the historic matchup that explored some of the underlying data about women's coaches. According to the Department of Education, in 2020, 95% of men's NCAA teams had coaches who identified as men. It's still the 50th anniversary of Title IX. We've heard a lot this year about some encouraging progress of women in men's pro sports. Becky Hammond as an assistant with the Spurs before taking a top job in the WNBA. Rachel Balkovich, who managed the Yankees Class A team in Florida this season, a few assistants in the NFL. That's all great. But a bigger problem remains the preponderance of men coaching women's teams. The DOE numbers show that less than half of women's teams in 2020 had coaches who identified as women. The highest percentages of women coaching women in NCAA sports offered by more than 20 schools were ones played only or differently by women like lacrosse, field hockey, softball. Soccer is a glaring example. In the NCAA overall, two-thirds of women's teams were coached by men in 2020. The number topped 70% in D1. Girls' club soccer is dominated by male coaches. The reporting in the Washington Post and The Athletic and the Yates Report last month documented sexual and emotional abusers hired, sometimes repeatedly, and tolerated by male-owned and operated teams in the NWSL. Even now, after everything that's gone down, the league finished its season with just four women head coaches at its 10 teams. At a news conference before the NWSL final on Saturday, one of those women, Portland's Ryan Wilkinson, noted that abusive male coaches aren't restricted to this league. I need to continue to state this, she said. I've played in a lot of different countries. I've lived in a lot of different countries. It's everywhere. So what's the answer? Maybe it's pretty simple. Hire more women. Four of those six NWSL jobs held by men are interim because the predecessors were ousted as part of the league scandals. It was reported on Monday that one of the permanent jobs is going to a man. The rest, I hope, will go to women, as should more coaching jobs in high schools and colleges, too, in women's sports and, like at NYU in Chicago, men's. Because the notion that the gender of a coach matters to players or matters at all is slowly vanishing. 
As long as their coach is knowledgeable, respectful, and effective, I just don't think that intelligent young athletes care about the coach's gender, just as intelligent young people don't care how a person chooses to identify. Julianne Sitch, the Chicago coach who played professionally and who was hired last spring, told David Waldstein in The Times that she never sensed the slightest resistance from players and families about her gender. Kim Wyant, who was a goalkeeper on the first U.S. women's national team in 1985 and has run the men's team at NYU since 2015, said the same thing. Players just want to know, can I get better? They are looking for a leader who is invested in the team. Do we feel respected? Whether male or female, if you can deliver all of those things, you can succeed. The most common explanation for the dearth of women in coaching, college or pro, is that the demands of the job are too great, that the pressure to win and attract fans and generate revenue requires 90-hour work weeks that are incompatible with families and childcare, responsibilities that still fall predominantly on women. But the culture of modern sports, the one that says that coaches need to sleep on cots in their offices and will be judged by their last win or loss, was naturally created by men. So maybe the problem isn't that more women might not be qualified or willing to coach. Maybe it's that men have made coaching an undesirable profession for women and control who gets hired. And maybe it'll take scandals like the one in the NWSL, as well as progressive leaders at non-powerhouse schools like Chicago and NYU, where the athletic directors are respectively a woman and an African-American man, to redefine what's required and expected of a coach and therefore, who is likely to want to become one. That's a really good point about how men made coaching bad <laughs> in, so, in so many ways. But yeah, that's a promising And isn't story. that so much false hustle anyway, by the way, it just is. before you move off that point? Like, a lot of that is false hustle. Right. Uh, the sleeping in the office, all that bullshit. Like, that's not necessary. No. None of it's necessary, and none of the sort of the life or death shit is necessary either. I mean, I'm trying to imagine a male coach at any level tweeting what Julianne Sitch did after her team's 14-game winning streak had come to an end. What a game, she wrote. Two top UAA, that's the University Athletic Association, two top UAA schools facing off and making history. I'm incredibly honored and humbled to be part of this moment. I want to give a huge shout-out to UC who helped make this happen, to my staff, you all rock, and I'm very fortunate for all that you do, to the team, wow, you inspire me daily, and I feel very honored to be coaching such an incredible group of young men. Loser talk. Isn't that what uh, what Nick Saban tweeted out the other day after? We should really talk someday some more about the culture of coaching, because it's possible that men have totally screwed up sports from possible. <laughs> start to finish. Yeah, you know, just uh, just making it an unfun, droll, just, you know, miserable uh, experience for a bunch of people because they all want to live out their Kobe alpha male fantasies or whatever. So, um, yeah, it couldn't hurt to think of some other ways to try to make make the games enjoyable and make them actually games. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.